When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get auto loan rates as low as 1.04% APR for 36 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. What's going on, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk here, and it is time for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday via PodcastOne.com, via Apple Podcast, and via Spotify. Totally free. Be sure to uh, subscribe and get an episode each and every week. New ones going up every Thursday. Be sure to check it out. And of course, thank you to Goodies Powders. We appreciate all the support of Goodies, and you have to check out their brand new product. It's truly a fantastic product. It's called Goodies Hangover. And, uh, well, it's, it's self-explanatory. Got a hangover? This thing helps you tremendously to recover from it. And who doesn't need that? I mean, we're, we're all in lockdown now. A lot of people having a couple, maybe more than they should. <laughs> Whatever the case may be, if you need a little recovery from that, you need to check out this great brand new product. It is Goodies Hangover. You can get Goodies products wherever you get uh, your medicinal needs. You can maybe try, well, certainly Amazon and then maybe of any of your uh, fine pharmacies or anything like that. So be sure to check it out. Goodies Hangover, their brand new product, and you can get more information at goodiespowder.com. And we appreciate the very cool uh, stickers that they made for us. And you can uh, find those if you'd like to get one. You can get them at uh, my website. All you got to do is mail away. Hit the trunk report section of eddytrunk.com for the mail away address, and I'll send you some out. We've had a bunch of people already send away for the new Trunk Nation goodies stickers, and those are 
flying off the shelf. So while supplies last, be sure to mail away and grab one if you are interested. Again, the website, goodiespowder.com. Check out all their products, including Goodies Hangover, their latest and, well, I don't want to say greatest because they got a lot of great products, but one you should absolutely check out. Okay, so podcast-wise this week as far as interviews, and by now you know all the interviews you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast originated on my Sirius XM radio show. That's always important to tell you each and every week. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, do not miss Trunk Nation live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replaying every night, 10 to midnight Eastern, and full shows and interviews on demand anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. So a million ways to listen. There's a lot of cool video on the app as well. If you are not yet a listener and subscriber of Sirius XM for my show Trunk Nation and all the other fine content, be sure to get on board if you're in the U.S. or Canada. Here on the podcast, you are only getting a tiny taste of what I do on a daily basis on the radio. Okay, so another long one, another double dip this week. We'll start with Joe Bonamassa, one of the most celebrated guitarists we have today. I've always loved how Joe has conducted his career and conducted his business. He has really done a remarkable job building a massive following around the world for his his brand of blues rock. Of course, he also has Black Country Communion. He is a guy that produces other artists. He's an amazing guitar collector. If you're into that world, my God, Joe has an incredible guitar collection and a real good guy. I guess I first got to meet Bonamassa when the first Black Country Communion record came out. Uh, we've been uh, friends since and known each other since. And he is just, uh, I just watched his career. He started as a kid in a band called Bloodline back in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I say a kid, he was like 15, 16 in that band. And to see the career he's built now and uh, the quality of what he's doing, it's just incredible. A really great story. A guy who did it his way, no compromise, chased what he loved, became a master at it, and built an unbelievable career and global following. Joe joins us first this week talking about his career, a little Black Country Communion, a little pandemic talk, uh, a bunch of different stuff. It was great to catch up with Joe. You'll hear that first. And then second, a guy that I did not know prior to the interview you'll hear, uh, a guy that a lot of people have said to me, oh, you got to have him on sometime. Be great if you guys ever connected. And that is Butch Walker. And Butch Walker is a noted producer and songwriter, has worked with a bunch of different artists. He has his own solo career. He started out in an 80s hard rock band in the late 80s. We talk about that. He's produced a bunch of different artists. He works in the world of pop and the world of rock. He's a very, very multi-talented guy, and it was great to spend some time with him and get to know him a little bit in an interview that, quite honestly, I could have went way longer with if we had the time because we... We're just kind of getting warmed up on all the different things that Butch has done in his career. But it's a good starter, especially if you haven't kept up with the things that Butch Walker has been doing in his career. And we touch on a lot of that in the interview you're about to hear. So a real long one again this week. Two big interviews. We start with Bonamassa. Second, Butch Walker. And that's what's happening on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Remember, follow me on Twitter Instagram at Eddie Trunk. There's also a Facebook fan page at Eddie Trunk that I post some stuff on, and EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. 
We will come right back and get started with Joe Bonamassa next on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. America's ready to get back to work, but to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run for your whole company right from your phone. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. Receive your free, yes, I said free guide, seven actions businesses need to take now and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash trunk. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now. netsuite.com slash trunk. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash trunk. NetSuite.com slash trunk. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's Eddie Trunk here with you on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Coming up in a bit, Butch Walker. But first, we get started with Joe Bonamassa this week. Enjoy. Joe, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. We were texting a little bit last week, and I said, hey, you know, everybody's just kind of knocking around and figuring out what's going on in the world today. It'd be great to get caught up a few minutes on the air, and I appreciate you uh, you doing it. So how has this whole thing been for you, man? You are a very active touring musician all over the world. Were you on the road when the pandemic hit? Yes, we were... Um we were in our last show technically was Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the next night we were playing green Bay and all the while we were calling ahead to the venues because we had seven more shows when this thing started to scale. And we were like, are you sure you want us to show up? You know, because, uh, you know, we need to know because it's, it's not like it's just, I'm a, I'm not a soul act. I travel with 30 people and a lot of logistics. And the first sign that this thing was about to implode was my crew set up the PA in the lights in Green Bay. And about an hour and a half into the morning, uh, the governor called the venue and said, you're done. And then we moved on to Minneapolis and basically set up the whole show. And by 530, the day of the first night in Minneapolis, we were done. And then we just we just went home. And then our entire European uh, tour obviously got canceled. And our summer, and basically at that point, we as a as an entity decided to to kind of sit out twenty twenty and and live to fight another day or year, as they say. We'll we'll be back in twenty twenty one, which is insane because I've been constantly on the road for twenty years. It's it's, and I know a lot of people that are road dogs like myself that are in the same position. They're going, uh, this is this is crazy not to be able to play live. It's crazy to just be kind of 
sequestered at home and not have a mission statement or a plan, you know? What's interesting about your story and all the artists I've talked to since this has all started is you actually attempted, you had two shows, you know, the day half ready to go that, that, that got canceled. So you, you had one hit and then you're like, okay, well, let's, we'll still keep going and go to the next city and see what happens. Then you got to another state and then that got shut down. So you had two shutdowns before you actually just called it a day. Uh, which is, I think, you know, yeah. kind of unusual. I didn't realize the sort of rollout because it hit everybody differently. I mean, I've talked to artists who were in Europe when it happened. Just the timing of it and the way everybody handled it. Um, after one being canceled, I'm surprised you weren't like, you, you obviously weren't too spooked to say, oh, you know what? I'm getting out of here and going home right now. You even, you tried to do another one. We tried to do another one. And the thing is, at that part of March. We, this was the middle of March. This was 14, 15. The, 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 the amount of information that was available, obviously the, 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 the safety of the fans and the crew and everybody is tantamount to our you know, business and, and, and me personally. But we, we were doing our very best to discern and uh, like each state had different regulations, like Seattle, we had two shows in Seattle. They canceled immediately, and they said, but don't even bother coming. State of Washington, even Tacoma was like, but Tacoma was still on. But Seattle canceled, and you're like, we, it's like, what's, you know, nobody was definitive about what, like, here's a policy, go home. You know what I mean? You know, it was just like, they kind of left it up to the artist's discretion. They kind of left it up to the, the, to the local authorities, mayor, you know, state governor, city council, you know, health council of the city. And none of it was, it was very fluid, the situation. And finally, you know, after hours on the phone, you just go, this is, this isn't good. And we need to live to fight another day. And we finally just said, okay, we, we took the buses and the trucks and went back to Nashville and it was like, it, and it was, it was over in 12 hours. You know, and, you know, we were 17 shows out of 24 in and the difference of 24 hours was was incredible, you know, because we played Milwaukee on a Tuesday and got canceled and on Green, you know, in Green Bay on a Wednesday, you know, like, well, OK, it was fine 24 hours ago, but now it's like the world is ending. So it was very yeah. difficult as an artist because you want to keep, you know, the worst thing you do to fans is cancel day of show. You know what I mean? Right. If you get sick or whatever. So it, we had to kind of weigh all of this and then make a decision on our own. And at that point, the, there was a lot of bands still out playing. There was, there was bands that went on three, four, five, six days after we decided to go home because, you know, they were either in Canada or they were in different states. And then finally, by the end of that week, you know, by the 20th of March, 21st of March, um, the entire touring industry was shut down. And Joe, in addition to all the touring you do around the world regularly, you also do an annual cruise, right? We do two. We do two Keeping the Blues Alive cruises. We did one in February. That was great. And then we have we had one scheduled for August, which we moved to uh, the following year, which the 2021, which uh, you know, we were really looking forward to. We had Jethro Tull. I mean, come on. You know, it's like I'm like such a Tull fan. And, you know, again, it's just we have to make sure that the safety of the fans is, is, is first and foremost. And now that there's a lot more information to base decision-making, you know, on, it's, 
it's it's a lot easier to think ahead. You know, it's it's not easy because you know we have employees, we have band members, we have crew guys. You know, my friends in the music industry who haven't been as fortunate career wise as myself are really struggling because their entire summer tour, you know, where they make most of the money in the festivals and and you know amphitheaters or or you know blues fest or whatever you know that just evaporated and they have no source of income whatsoever for the foreseeable future which is you know which is really rough and a lot of people got caught flat-footed you know because nothing like this has ever happened yeah well you're right and and everybody every situation is certainly case by case i mean for me uh, even what I do, I mean, I've taken a lot of hits because I'm on the road hosting stuff and out there and cruises and festivals. I'm supposed to be in Oklahoma this weekend hosting a festival and that's canceled. So you take your hits. I mean, I'm lucky. I'm not complaining. I got this, which is my anchor gig. Thank God. But I think all the time and I talk to the to the fans that call this show about this all the time is like every artist is in a different boat, so to speak. There are some artists that live tour to tour, show to show, paycheck to paycheck. Some have been very successful and they can tread water for a long time. But you think about the crews, you think about all those people uh, that, that work behind the scenes at every capacity of putting on a show of, of any kind of entertainment. And that's who you really got to, got to feel for. And I know you, you actually are doing something um, I saw it on the homepage of your website. So you're doing some sort of fundraising for those people, right? Yes. Um, I, I came up with this idea about a week after I got home. And, you know, I, I kind of started to just take stock of my life and career. And I said, you know, when I was like 22 years old and we were out opening up for George Thorogood or Bad Company or Jethro Tull, you know, you know, gas was uh, you know we would we would leave new york city and deadhead to tulsa oklahoma or wherever the first show was and we'd go through about a thousand dollars worth of gas and hotels and i decided to to start raising money we're almost at two hundred thousand dollars in the last three weeks and we're giving away a thousand dollar stipend check and a five hundred dollar gas card because when bands go to rescale and get back on the road they're going to have to deadhead from somewhere and it's going to cost them money to get to their first gig to where they can start making money. So I call it the Fueling Musicians Program. And we've had over 200 acts sign up. And in the last two weeks, we've given away 50 packages that are worth about $1,500. Now, it's not life-changing money, but it just relieves a little pressure from the valve, so to speak, You know, where they have that gas card in their pocket and they can get in the van and they can, they can, they can dead head out and do shows when they're allowed to do shows. And, you know, so to me, the first thousand miles is on us. And I, you know, it's just something to do because yes, I have been fortunate. And, but I also remember those days when, when $1,500 was a life changing event, you know, in de facto tour support to keep us going and on the road, you know, to get to the next show to sell merch. And, you know, you're, when you're, when you're not making a lot of money playing shows in small clubs, you're living on T-shirts and CD sales. You're out there in the lobby. You're signing, and that money that you get from those sales basically pays for the hotels, pays for the two ninety nine, you know, McDonald's value meal that you show up at the drive through, and you know, and it, it 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 slowly it works. You know, it's not glamorous, but it works. Yeah, I've said that too. That's one of the tricky things about all this when things get back to to touring and even if you talk about bands that are say at the club level 
a lot of them make the 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 finances work by going out to merch meeting the fans signing taking photos with them maybe it's a paid meet and greet maybe it's just being by merch to spike the sales of the shirts all of those that that extra money can be the difference between making it on the road or not or being in a bus versus a van and the the irony of all that to me joe is that all of that stuff involves inter fan uh uh dealings meaning that you know throwing your arm around somebody and taking the photo shaking the hand at the merch booth that's all contact stuff which you wonder about when we do get back to shows at even the smaller levels like the clubs will people even be able to do because it might be a case where it's like no you yes. got to come in the back your temperature's got to be checked go play your show out the back door you can't go out and mingle and press the flesh because it's just not safe to do so those are all like question marks for certainly bands at that level i would think yes and you know it is a, there's a lot of questions because even if at, right now if 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 there was a mandate saying yes you can go out and tour. You can do whatever you need to do. There's going to be a consumer confidence issue going forward until there are proof of concepts, meaning that fans go out, people are you know seated next to each other, the meet and greets happen like like they used to, and and in, until there's a proof of concept, aka a vaccine of some sort or some sort of defense, herd immunity, whatever you want to call it there's not going to be that level of consumer confidence where the fans are not going to want to stand with you, you know, because, because you're going to go, well, this guy is meets, you know, like when, I, when I'm on the road, I'm doing, you know, five shows, six shows a week. I'm meeting, I don't know, 300, 400 people a week in the lobby, you know, and they're going to look at me as the typhoid Mary going, this guy meets 300 people a week, right. you know, he's sick, you know, versus where I was going, Oh my God, I don't want to catch a cold because I want to, I got to sing. But you know, it, it's going to have to slowly re people have to get confident that, that they go out to a restaurant, they go out to a show, they go out to both maybe because that's what part of the whole deal. They go, they get something to eat. They go to a show, they go to a app, you know, bar afterwards. There are three different places with people in a, in a course of seeing one concert, you know, until people are convinced that when they do that, the world's not going to end. The industry itself is going to have a very hard time, getting back to where it was two and a half months ago. And, and it's, and it's time is going to be the only real, not the no pun intended. It's going to be the only cure for that is just the proof of concept and some time to see how it all plays out and how, you know, our immune systems deal with this new thing. That's now airborne. Last thing on this, and I want to talk to you about a few other things. So as a performer and as somebody that tours the world, and as you said, you, you have two cruises every year, you're all over the planet uh, playing, and you built an unbelievable career and audience and all that, and you've pushed Thanks. everything now into 2021. What are you going to need to see as the performer? You know, what, what is Joe Bonamassa going to need to be told and see before you're confident going back out there again. Are you going to wait for a vaccine, or w would you be willing to do it before there's one? I'm. I would like to see a vaccine, and more so, I'd like to see the fan experience come back to where it's an enjoyable experience. 
you know, I was reading an article about how how Disney is planning on, you know, slowly reopening up their theme parks. And some of the things that they were proposing make the happiest place on earth sound like a nightmare. You know, right. I mean, how do you tell small children that, that are waiting, waiting for the Pirates of the Caribbean ride to stand six feet apart, you know, lines that could take three hours to get in, you, you know, that's not a very enjoyable fan experience. And you're selling the fans a, 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 an enjoyable night out until there's some fun in it, you know, and, and, you know, we get back to the core reason why we all do this is to entertain and to take people, you know, give them a, a, a break in their daily lives. They just want to go out and see a rock show or whatever it is until that point starts to get back to where it used to be. To me, it's not worth, it's not worth forcing the issue. It's a, to me, it's a, a square peg in a round hole. Now, there's going to be the frontiersmen that are going to go out and, well, I have to work, and I don't care what it looks like. And I'm not sure how long, how that's going to affect their business and for how long. You know, so we're just, we're playing a very, you know, long ball, wait and see kind of, kind of strategy because ultimately we want to keep our fans. You know, and, and I don't want people to come out to our show in Cleveland and go, man, that was miserable. I had to get my temperature taken. It was like getting a physical. And then, then I'm, now I'm allowed to sit, you know, you know, six feet away from my wife. It, it, that doesn't sound like fun to me. That doesn't sound like the core nature of why we do this. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I, but I really think it comes down to, for some of these artists, whether they're willing to take a chance on doing something like that, really you know, what their situation is, if we're being honest, uh, what, what their business is. I mean, if you got these guys out there that, that can't, uh, at the lower levels, they can't, uh, make it, make it without, uh, being, uh, you know, doing some sort of gig, even if it's weekend warrior stuff. And for them that, uh, that go week to week and month to month on, on money, they're, they're either going to have to find something else to do, or they're going to have to throw a little caution to the wind and try whether it's playing a drive-in movie theater or playing these shows. I had an, a young artist on last week, this guy, Travis McCready, he did a show in Arkansas and he made news because he was just simply trying to do a show and they set up these fan pods right. and everybody was six feet apart and all that. And I've talked to him about it and it's just the review that came out of that show was like, well, Two, it was 200. They sold 200 tickets in an 1100 cap theater and it, it felt cavernous and empty. The vibe wasn't there. So there, there's all sides of this. It's really sort of hard to understand. And I think everybody, since it's unprecedented, is trying to figure out what works for them. Yeah. And, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be an artist, you know, uh, choice going forward. You know, you want that, you want the fans to have a good vibe. And that's the whole point, you know. The fans are, to me, the, 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 the last 15% of a great gig. You know, the band could be on and, and the, the, the crowd could be quiet and, and then the band's energy goes down. Conversely, the band could, you know, like I've had nights where I'm like terrible. You know, like I can't believe I'm making these kind of mistakes. And, but the crowd is so into it that it, it, it lifts you up and you go, okay, let me shake this off and get in the gear. And the crowd is part of the show. You know, I don't think, I don't know if people realize it is the reaction and the, and the, and the vibe in the room is 15 to 20% of the entire, of the, of the entire show, because it's just, you know, everybody wants to create that moment on France and comes alive, you know, where, where the crowd is just electric. And it's like, <laughs> right. wow, this is, 
why we do this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's a great point. So we're talking about all this pandemic stuff and again it's a big question mark for everybody and joe has said that as far as touring and playing it'll resume hopefully in 2021 for him but joe let me ask you in this very unusual time for you to have all of this time essentially like pretty much a year at home uh what are you going to do are you going to be working in the studio are you writing are you recording what is where's your focus going to be as far as having all this downtime without being on the road well, in the short term, um, I'm producing a record for the great Eric Gales, who's a wonderful guitar player and one of my yeah. you know, best friends. We're going to do that in September. And then we're going to, you know, part of everybody's strategy to pivot, um, our new record, which is coming out in, um, in October, we're going we're gonna to set up a soundstage in Nashville. And we're going to get the band back together. And we're going to do a, a, a live pay-per-view um, we're going to do the record in its entirety to kind of like promote the record. And, and that'll be the fall 2020 tour. And so you have, you Joe, you have an album in the can then. I have an album in the can that we, we, we finished in January in London. We recorded it at Abbey road studios. And so, you know, we're going to promote the record and, you know, do this live stream. And then I'm going to start another record in January because I still have, material from at the abbey road sessions that we didn't get to and now i have nothing but time to kind of write a follow-up to that and you know so at this point you know when we do resume touring i'll have new material so it'll be like it'll be like a reboot of the act you know what i mean because it's not we're not just gonna you know pick up the set list where we left off and go okay you know this was the show we were going to do in green bay the one that got canceled but it'll be like a new you know, it'll be almost two records in the can at that point before we even play a live show again, which, um, which will be interesting because, you know, it'll give the fans a new experience and, and it'll, it'll look, it'll sound different. And, and, uh, you know, again, we're in the entertainment business and it's the idea is to entertain people and keep them interested. So are you feeling, so then you're feeling that barring anything catastrophic happening come September, you're going to be comfortable traveling because obviously you live in LA, you're going to get to Nashville and putting yeah. the band together and being in, at least in, in, in those spaces and even producing Eric's record. Are you doing it actually physically in a studio or are you going to do it virtually? Cause I've talked to producers who are producing stuff over like zoom for artists. How are you going to tackle that? Yes. We're going to, we're going to do it in the room, um, you know, and we're going to make sure everybody, you know, it's, it's going to be a very small group of people, um, that are be involved in it. And, you know, everybody will sign off on, you know, a being healthy and B being comfortable in the room. And, you know, if we have to wear masks, we'll wear masks and, 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 you know, take, take the most precautions, you know, you know, the, you know, reasonable pragmatic precautions, you know, to not, you know, you know, be reckless with it. And, you know, life, you know, the studios are going to be open in, in uh, you know, I think in the next 15 to 20 days in Nashville. And they're, I, they're already doing some sessions there. And, you know, my, my studio buddies are there sitting there with their gear and masks. And, and, you know, life is slowly returning to normal, you know, in certain places in the country. And, and you know, still locked down in, you know, like New York and California and stuff like that. So, you know, that's. That's the tentative plan, but again, everything's fluid. You know, it could all change in in, in twenty four hours. You know, and and it, you know, in March when it happened, it was like a real like wow, this is crazy. You know, but 
everybody's prepared that all plans are soft until we actually we actually do this. You know, so I don't I I don't want to do a Zoom record. I I think I'm old school. I I, I still think having the kinetic energy in the room, the players playing and playing music that's not, you know, latent, you know, it doesn't have latency, you know, you know, you're depending on your internet connection. So that's the plan going forward. Now, if something happens, that plan, you know, is rendered moot and, and we don't, you know, we're not going to do it. Then we'll just keep sitting it out and wait, you know, wait for a safe time to do it. You know, you mentioned a guy like Eric Gales who years ago I worked for his management when he was first signed to Electra as a young kid. I think he was like 15, 16. And I know he's fallen on some hard times over the years. I saw him not too long ago, though, playing on the Experience Hendrix tour and we reconnected a little bit. And, uh, even back when he was a kid, when, when, when I was first introduced to him, like 15, 16, uh, an immense talent, uh, just a great, great talent. And I wonder, like, for you, you started super young, too. I mean, that that Bloodline record, how old were you on that? I recorded that record when I was between my 14th and 15th birthday. That's insane. um, Yeah, so I was, 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 uh, you know, I was just, we were kids, you know, Eric's a few years older than me, but we used to run together, like, you know, on the club circuit, you know, we were all, you know, he was signed to Electra, and, I, you know, we were on EMI, and, you know, we would do shows together in, like, Alabama and Georgia, and, you know, he's always been, to me, a cut above his creativity on the guitar, he's a monster, and, you know, my job as a producer for him is to get him some songs, and, and he has a great singing voice that, you know, I mean, a lot of us guitar players get known for just playing guitar, but he's a, he's a great singer. And my plan is to showcase how, you know, great a singer and artist he is, a total package, so to speak, um, versus just, you know, guitar, you know, guitar Mageddon from track one through 12. You know, I mean, everybody knows he can play, you know, now we're going to get him, you know, let's, let's, let's showcase his writing and his singing and, and the artist that, that is Eric Gale. And I think to me is one of the best i mean it's just he's terrifyingly good on 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 all fronts yeah, that's where I was. That's where I was going with that. I didn't know that you had that long of a history with him because the the parallel I'm drawing was that you both started incredibly young. And and for people that don't know Joe, your your story with, with Bloodline, I don't remember exactly who else was in the band, which is kind of ironic because the, I do yes. remember the whole idea about Bloodline is it was like a celebrity band. So at the time that that came out, which I think was '94, you were the guy that nobody knew that was part of that band right. and now flash forward 25 years you're the guy everybody knows that was part of the band it's funny how that happened yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it was it was funny because like in interviews back then i remember you know you know uh, you know radio djs and journalists would ask me it's like okay and and, and who is your father because we were in a, a the, the the band consisted of um you know barry oakley jr whose father was barry oakley from the allman brothers Waylon krieger his father's Robbie Krieger from the Doors. Aaron Davis. His father was Miles Davis. And they would go, "Who, who, who's your dad?" And I, you know, yeah, I'm a 15 year old. I go, "His name is Len. He's standing right there." You know, it's like <laughs> they're like, well, he, he's, not a, "He's not a, he's not a celebrity." He's like, "No, he's from Utica, New York." You know, you know, he works for a, a paper manufacturer. You know, so you know, it's it's one of the things. You know, it's it's funny to look back 25 years, 26 years, you know, back, and you go, "It's a long journey." 
you know, from, you know, when, when I was signed to Epic Records and I met Tom Dowd and then I did solo records, then meeting Kevin Shirley and then everybody kind of collectively started to remember my last name and then my, you know, my, my association and, and, you know, being a member of Black Country Communion and, you know, more of the rock audience started to, you know, recognize uh, my last name. So it's, you know, it's been a great, it's been a great journey. And, you know, and it's just to look back at it because I've had time to look back at my history and I'm like, wow, this is a, a pretty unique career. You know, it's like in, on paper, it wouldn't have worked. You know, if you, you know, told an A&R guy back in 94, the, 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 the pudgy kid with the cowboy hat will, will one day be at the Albert Hall. They'd be like, uh, I'm not going to take that bet. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a side bet against your bet, you know? So it's, it's just wacky how it worked out. Well, it, you can say wacky, but, you know, and maybe you're not comfortable saying this, but I will because, you know, I followed your career for a long time, and, and I think it's it's built on, you, you mentioned earlier, you're old school. I mean, what your career is built on is old school values. It's being great and at the top of your game, doing things the right way, uh, you know, having great people around you. And it's not built on a one hit single or some flash in the pan or some social media scandal or nothing. It's just built on hard work and putting the work in and touring and, and getting your craft to the point where it, it's a, in, the, in an elite class and then building a fan base that has a trust in, in what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when I, you know, I get a lot of the British rock magazines and stuff, and I'm always following things and looking at things. And even though I don't know the venue or I've never been to the venue, I'll know that it's a prestigious venue. And I'll be like, damn, look at Joe. I mean, you know, playing here and playing there all over the world. And it's just so great to see because it's just built on your steadfast commitment to being the best you can be and having the best people around you. And I think that that is not only a testament to the work you've put in, but it's, it's just a testament to the fan base that you built that they've, they've come along and they're at the point now where like what you give them, they're all in on for the most part. I mean, and as an artist, that's got to feel amazing. It feels amazing. And thank you, Eddie. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is I feel fortunate that I was able to build my core fan base pre-social media, the old school way. I mean, it's a total marathon, not a sprint, it's not a hit song, even though I have a few songs that my fans need to hear on the live side because they just go back that many years. And I feel fortunate that I'm not a social media, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm looking for the right word, but I'm not, a, I'm not a social media artist in the sense that people, I just didn't come out of nowhere on Instagram. I was out there, basically selling it brick and mortar out of the back of our, you know, out of the back of the van for many years. And that's how I built the core fan base. And, you know, and it's also just for me, you know, it's very rewarding to see that because, you know, I, I, you know, believe it or not, I have like of all the side projects and live records and I have 43 albums out. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's, wow. just a, it's, it's just, it's a strategy that we had of just like, you know, servicing, the fans that like this kind of music and, you know, they, they buy, you know, everything from my new studio album to, you know, live at the Sydney opera house. And, you know, they just, they, 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 they like this kind of music. And I'm, you know, again, very fortunate that they've come along in this journey with me for, for now 20 years or more. And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but from my, from where I sit as an outsider here, it's always seemed like 
in England, they've embraced the blues and blues-based rock uh, at a larger scale than maybe here in America, especially for you know guys doing it like when you started and out of the gate, and even now like you know, very bluesy based rock bands like a band I love like Rival Sons did way better and got yeah. way more acclaim in England, even though they're from you know Long Beach, California. So why do you what do you, what do you pick up on that? Like from you, you're a big uh, supporter of the blues, and I know you've got you know, keep the blues alive and all that stuff that you do. Yeah. Why? What do you having toured so much? What do you think it is over there that has built such a, a base for that stuff? I would say between you know the the UK, um, Germany, France, um, Spain, Italy, even in Scandinavia, there there there's an appetite for organic music. You know, and they're alive. They're a live culture. You know, they go to events where in America, early on, it was very challenging to get people out on a Tuesday night in Des Moines, Iowa. You know, where a concert in you know Bristol, UK. You know, people are like going, "Let me go check this guy out." I I read something in the you know the newspaper. I read something in Classic Rock magazine or whatever, and all of a sudden you get a thousand people, two thousand people, five thousand people show up. And, you know, but it started with 200 people in a small pub, you know, but it, but it, it caught on quicker. And then when I did the Royal Albert Hall video, the, the DVD in 2009, PBS picked it up here in America. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, playing Radio City Music Hall and without a hit song on the radio and everybody's going, well, isn't he British? They thought I was British for like 10 years. And I'm like, no, I'm from Utica, New York. You know, I'm like. And, and it's just been, you know, again, like acts like the rival sons. Sometimes you have to go find the audience first, break somewhere, you know, and then come back as, as the, you know, triumphant hero, you know, where you'd be, you know, be very frustrating to, to try to like, well, we really just need to be big in America, you know, and we're going to, we're going to keep pounding pavement until people catch on, you know, where you can go over to the UK, which is a much smaller space. And, but, you know, there's 60 million people there. And if you can get some traction, you get some media attention and it all, it, it, it starts, you know, the, the, it starts to scale and it starts to, the snowball effect, you know, and that's what happened to me. You know, it was, it was the UK, Germany and all those like tours I would do. We would do 13 in a row over there. You know what I mean? It was like, we, you know, you couldn't make any money. So in order to pay for the hotels, you're doing every night. And there was a Bavarian beer hall somewhere in you know you know out, out, outside of munich that would 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 book you for 250 euros and and it would be kind of full so you're in front of people you know and and this kind of music you just got to get it in front of people and if you could do that and 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 play with that unbridled enthusiasm and it it, it it'll work out you know that's why that's why i dig you know with those guys like you know tyler bryant's doing and you know they they're fighting the good fight because they they said we're not going to just you know concentrate all of our efforts in america we're going to go find our audience and then come back as you know conquering heroes so where have you been for last night well we've been working we've been we've been you know hustling and building an audience in territories that maybe aren't as quote-unquote romantic to to be big in but you're big somewhere you know there's a big crowd it's people they love music you know it's a universal language yeah, there are some great emerging. I mean, I'm really encouraged by where we're going with 
some of these artists that are coming up. I mean, it's really hard for them because you got to put the time in and you're up against a model now where, because, you know, labels are, are or are not relevant depending upon the situation. But there are so many of these. And I think the problem is, is there's just so much out there. It's kind of hard for the, the consumer to find, find them and find out what's good and what's not. You mentioned Tyler Bryant. Uh, I don't know if you've heard Jared James Nichols. I love what he does. Uh, there, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah there's great. so many, there's so many of these great young players and, and artists that more importantly for me as a fan, keeping it real because I despise the movement of bands playing the tracks and tapes. I mean, I love real plugged in music. And I think a lot of these guys are going for that. And it's really exciting for me. I just hope Joe, that there's enough people in the world we're at now. I mean, you came into the world with bloodline 94, 14 year old kid. Now in 2020 is somebody starting out. They're up against like, literally everybody pumping stuff out there. And it, I think it's just hard to get a spotlight on it. It's the number one thing I hear from people. It's just like, w- w- just, okay, there's so much. How do we find the good stuff and, and what's real? That's, I think the biggest challenge yeah. today. Yeah, it is. You know, and one of the things, you know, you know, we had Jared James on our, our cruise in February and, you know, it's quote unquote a blues cruise, but he rocks harder than anybody. And, yeah. and, and, What's amazing to see is uh, an audience that comes, you know, primarily to see myself and Buddy Guy and, and, you know, some blues artists were just as into, you know, Jared James Nichols. And we had uh, the, the, one of my favorite bands of all time, Living Color, on, on our, yeah. our cruise in February. And they were, they were sitting there, you know, our audience was like, this is great. And it, the proof of concept is, is that fans of live music, fans of guitar-based blues or whatever, they don't just listen to blues music. They listen to all kinds of music. They're hip to Mountain. They're hip to Jethro Tull. They're hip to, you know, it's, it's not just one space. And one of the things about, you know, breaking through in a, in a very crowded field is if you do what you do and don't apologize for it, people will take notice. It may take longer, but when you own your own lane, and then it finally catches on. You own your own lane. You're not out there copying. Like you said, you're not out there going, wow, these vocals sound incredibly in tune for a live gig, you know? And it's, and it's like, <laughs> then you see a MacBook pro come somewhere on stage. And you're like, Oh, okay, I get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And you know, because if you listen to some of the great live records who live at Leeds and, 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 you know, Frampton comes alive and, and you can just, you know, uh, humble pie rocking the film, all those records, Guitar's a little out of tune. There's a little pitchy thing here because it was real. And the human, the human nature of it all is people gravitate to stuff that's real and authentic. And they don't necessarily articulate why they like it. They just go, I love this and I don't know why. You know? Yeah. And that's one, one, one of the great point. Like, well, yeah, well, I was just going to yeah. say on the live thing, uh, I, I, one of my all-time favorite live records is Strangers in the Night by UFO, and I, I, I interviewed Ron Nevison, who produced that once, and he told me in, in the song Rock Bottom, Michael Schenker makes a mistake when it comes back into the riff, and he got in a huge fight over that with Schenker because Schenker wanted to fix it, and he wouldn't let him fix it, and, and I'm like, but that little mistake, which I'm not even a guitar player, I could just hear it that's become synonymous with the greatness of that record because so few of those records right. truly were live to know that that was actually how it went down is crazy to me. 
it's great. And, you know, and, there, and there's a bunch of kids with a flying V in the room actually learning the solo note for note and copying the mistake. It, it just <laughs> exactly. It's just a snapshot in time, you know? Yeah. And by the way, Eddie, do you know that I, 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 I auditioned for UFO when I was 18 years old and I didn't get the gig? That's that's crazy to me. I I don't. Um, so you did. Uh, uh, I think you did. Uh, yeah, you did Mitch Lafon's podcast, and I guess you told that story. And Mitch knows what a big UFO fan I am, and he sent me a note, and he was like, "Did you know this?" And I was like, "No, I didn't even know yeah. that." You lost the gig to Vinnie Moore. I lost the the gig to rightfully so to Vinnie Moore. He was the right guy. Um, but I did, I drove out from Utica, New York to Columbus, Ohio to go to Pete Way's house. And I sat in Pete Way's basement with Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie. And we, and we went through all the UFO classics and Pete was the one, Pete Way was the one that her, turned me on to free going, your vibrato is very much like Paul Kossoff. And I go, what's the Paul Kossoff? So he was responsible for opening me up to this entire new world of free and that, that really great British blues rock that I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is what I want to be when I grow up. So I didn't get the gig, but I got a, almost a collegiate-level lesson on the British blues rock you know, of, the, of the late 60s, early 70s. So it all worked out. And yeah, it worked I, out. <laughs> You're good, Joe. Yeah, I don't know if it lasted. I didn't look the part. I think, you know, and, and honestly, Vinny is so good and so right yeah. for that gig. It, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it all worked out for everybody, I think. No, no, no question about that. Listen, man, I could talk to you forever, and uh, I, I appreciate you taking some time. We'll have to, when things get back to normal, and hopefully I get out to L.A. because I was going out monthly, we'll have to connect and come sit in and do, do a whole show if, if you have the time. Last thing before I let you go, you mentioned Black Country Communion, which, of course, I love. Glenn and Derek and yep. Jason, everybody's staying busy with their own things. But do you have designs on wanting to do another record with BCC anytime? We had on the books, uh, we're going to, we were going to attempt a record, um, uh, you know, in, in January, 2021. Um, but the timeline got pushed back. So it'll probably be a year from there or maybe at the end of, at the, at the end of 2021. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still a band. We, we still all text each other and talk and, and stuff like that. And, you know, Glenn, I, I listened to Glenn's new track with the dead daisies. I thought it was great. You know, anything, he could sing, he could sing a, a, a recipe for lentil soup in it. I'm, I'm a fan. You know what I mean? So it's like. It's, yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's, How about this? How about this one real quick, which I'm sure you know, Satriani had him play on his last record, but not sing. Right. Play bass. He's a great bass yeah. player. Yeah, because that's what Joe Joe's like. Joe goes. Everybody gave me shit because they're like, "You got Glenn Hughes on your record, and you're not having him sing with that voice." He goes, "Nope, that's exactly why I wanted to do it." He goes, "I wanted to," and Kevin Shirley said this to me too. He goes, "If the guy wasn't blessed with with such an incredible voice, it kind of overshadows his bass playing because he's a great player." A uh, great bass player. Bass player. I mean, like he plays. He has his own bass style and his own sound. But he is directly, you can trace his influences directly back to James Jamerson and Andy Frazier. He has yeah. that, that, he has an English James Jamerson thing. And then, it's, of course, then he just unleashes Burn and you go, okay, it's Glenn you, you know. But he's a very sensitive, melodic bass player that is overshadowed because he has one of the greatest rock voices of all time. But, yeah. you know, that, those are Cadillac problems, Eddie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. 
Hey, listen, man, I got to run. I, I appreciate the time. Hopefully we'll do more soon. Stay safe and uh, keep me posted. If you need anything, you need to get the word out on anything, you know where to get me. And uh, great, great catching up for a bit, Joe. Thanks, Eddie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. Take care, all right? Thanks to Joe Bonamassa. Great conversation with him. Always good to catch up with Joe and a lot of cool stuff happening. And he is working now on producing an album for Eric Gales. We were in touch uh, recently, actually, just prior to that interview. And I'm going to be on Joe's podcast, which is called Nerdville. And I'll be on that coming up in the next week or two. Keep an eye on my Twitter at Eddie Trunk, and I'll let you know exactly when that's going to be airing. Okay, we'll come back. Interview number two on a big, big podcast week. Butch Walker is next. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. This is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness. The Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls. And guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have, it's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk back with you. Without further ado, as I said earlier in the open, Butch Walker as the second interview this week. Butch is a guy I've never talked to before. We have a bunch of people that, you know, we know each other mutually and all that, uh, but we just scratched the surface on his incredible career. So Butch Walker, right now, for the first time that I ever interviewed him, that's kind of rare for a guest here, at least for me, here on this podcast. So enjoy some talk with Butch right now. Hey, Butch. Good to meet hey, you. Hey, Eddie. How you doing? Good to I'm see you, good. man. You too. I'm tr- I was trying to figure it out before I did this. Have we ever met? Have I ever talked to you before? I can't tell. We've been in the same room with each other, but we've never broken the ice. So um, <laughs> I- I've, been, I've been backstage at certain shows that you were backstage at. I'll always be like, oh, there goes Eddie. And, but, you know, it's like you're running one way, I'm running another. And it's like hard to stop and 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 it make the introduction but um i've you know i've been i've been following you for a long time i i'm a i'm a fan of your brain well i i likewise man i'm a fan of what you've done for many many decades and continue to do and i knew that we had to have some i know we've uh exchanged an email or text in the last year or two but I know that we have so many mutual friends in in various bands and in the business that it just feels like I've known you, even though we've never really done this before. Um, where are you yep. now, Butch? Are you in L.A. at the moment? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of. We're kind of. You know, sequestered here in in California. Uh, uh, my kid goes to school here, uh, so he's still doing school for the next few weeks uh, online, of course. But um, <clears throat> we're 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 out here on the on the west side. 
my studios in Santa Monica and luckily I get to commute here every day and still work. I'm in my space now and it's this is where I've been making my records for the last five years in this particular space. And, uh, uh, it's good cause I work a lot in, I work a lot in isolation. So, uh, this is not nothing new for me. You know? Are you one of, you're one of those artists that you prefer to, to do everything and work singularly by yourself and get a lot of your stuff done without people around? It depends on the project. Yeah. But like, it, like if I'm working, like say with a solo artist, which I do often, uh, and I'm, I'm the band, then it's great. Cause I'm just here recording everything myself. I kind of engineer everything myself anyway. So it's kind of just a, a kid being left alone in his sandbox to do whatever. And so it's good. But when I work with bands uh, and, and record like live full band set up in here, then it's, it's a little bit more chaotic, but we're in between that right now. And I'd say that's a good thing because of just how nuts it's been, you know? So it's, everybody's been a little bit freaked out to uh, travel or be in a small room with each other. Um, so right now I'm just finishing up a couple of records for people. And, and then um, I got a record that came out last week and, and then I'm just, you know, getting ready to possibly dive into doing some more green day stuff while they're sitting uh, at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about all of that actually with you. Cause of course you worked with green day recently. You've worked with Weezer. Yeah. You, you worked with a, as a producer and a songwriter, I mean, a, a wide variety of artists in pop and rock and it, it, it's amazing. And congratulations on your career, man. What you've done is just simply incredible, but going back Thanks. to the, the production side of things j just before I, I was talking to you, I was talking to Klaus from Scorpions and he's in Germany oh, cool. and the record they're making now is with the producer, Greg Fiddleman, who's based in LA. And he told me that they were doing like zoom sessions to, for him to sort of listen to what they're working on and sort of produce from, you know, virtually from another country. Have you found yourself doing that sort of stuff as well? Whether it's even, whether it's writing, which you do a lot of songwriting for people or producing. Yeah. And it's mostly been the producing thing, uh, you know, lately. And so that being said, a lot of what I've been doing, uh, this is not, this isn't really a new technique for me because even on the last green day record, when we weren't in the same room with each other, you know, Billy, He's a very accomplished studio guy. They all are. Uh, and, and so uh, Billy has his own engineer, Chris Dugan, up in the Bay Area. And a lot of times we would just be sending files back and forth for songs. I'd be like, oh, okay, here, let me put something on it. Let me try this. Let me arrange it a little bit, do this. And then, you know, just with the, with, with the advancement of technology and digital and re digital recording and everything, it's so much easier. Um, I, the other day I did a session on, on uh, Zoom that was like a live tutorial thing for a company called universal audio for a recording software. And, um, you know, they had it linked in from their computer where literally the audio was feeding into my, my right into my multi-track recorder and vice versa with microphones, you know, it, you know, a fancy, you know, mic set up here and, um, it can be done now. It's, it's a little bit, it's, it, they still got a, a little ways to go, but man, if you would try to do this shit five years ago, 10 years ago, it, it was not really even possible. So it, in a way that we're, we're, we're living in a good time, I guess, for something crazy like this to happen. If we need want to still get uh, music done, you know, in recordings. But as a producer, do you, do you find, and I, I hear from people who have different, different thoughts on this, both artists and producers where some are like, there's no substitute for being in the same room, looking each other Agreed. in the eye 
and the the vibe of just you know being on the floor and playing and actually doing it like that. And then you know, I t- talk to a lot of people like they have people on their records like I never even met the guy. So you know there's yeah. there's that world out there that wide. As as a producer, wh- where do you fall on that? Well, I way prefer you know human you know interaction. That's that's just. I'm a people person. I'm not one of those guys that like grew up smelling solder my whole life and can't talk to somebody. (laughs) I like to, I like to talk. I like to communicate with people and I love fellow musicians and artists and breathing in a room and getting shit done is great. Um, But you know, there's plenty of times where I just have to do it that way. I've made a record with somebody who couldn't leave the East coast because of some, some health situations. And so in order to get the record done, it had to be done where, they would send me the vocals and I literally would create the whole track and then send it back and go back and forth until it was done. And yeah, there was never hardly a, a, a setting foot in the room with the, with the artist at all on that record. But, um, you know, right now out of necessity, I'll take it. I'll take whatever, whatever it takes to get the product done and get the, get the art out. Uh, I'm happy to, to do it. However, and explore all technical, uh, you know, abilities right now. Butch Walker is my guest. His new album, which just came out is called American love story. We'll get to that in a second, but Butch, I want to go back for a second here. I want to go through your career a little bit for my, my uh, audience, because I'm sure you have a lot of them that are fans and know you. And then maybe some that off the name, they just don't quite click, but I want to start all the way early on because my audience being so into, you know, eighties, seventies based hard rock, you first came on anyone's radar in, in with your first band, South Gang, that came in like 90, 91-ish, if I'm not mistaken. And that was really your first thing. Why do you think that band didn't go the distance? Do you think that it was more to do with just timing because maybe you were just a couple years too late where the scene got smashed by Nirvana, you know, really quickly? Absolutely. I mean, you just answered the question. It's pretty much... uh you, you know, we, we came out to uh, L.A. We were kids from a small rural town in Georgia, North Georgia mountains. And we went straight to the Sunset Strip in 88. And uh, a year later, we had, a, we, we had a, a record deal with Virgin Records, Charisma Virgin Records. And we were, you know, on our way. But the, I could smell the clock was ticking because there was all this new surgence of music and style shift and cultural change and everything was starting to you know and we were young we were only like 18 19 years old so it was a it was a it was a learning experience but also we wanted to be able to at least get out into the world what we had what we came out there to do which was we were playing melodic hard rock in a band that was influenced by you know everybody you can think of at the time you know we were we were equal parts you know modern aerosmith in that moment in the 80s to you know you name it bon jovi everybody that was on the radio or anywhere that was our influences because we came from a small town where that was all we knew was what was on the radio and and on mtv and we dove head first into it And by the time we finished a record and by the time we finished you know making the big crazy expensive video with with the big video director and the whole nine yards that that was just like at the tail end of of, of a lot of those bands getting signed. And so we still, we still managed to, uh, you know, drain, drain the blood as much as we could for two albums and tours and did it, 
you know, we went full force, but I think that, you know, we were struggling internally as well, as far as like being able to agree on things. We were growing as kids. We were just kids when we started. So, you know, that's a pivotal time when you're reaching, when you're going into your early twenties and your mid twenties, and then you start, you start just kind of figuring out who you are and maybe that doesn't align with all your other members. So you, so you did what so many did at that time. You literally uprooted small town in Georgia and moved to LA for the dream, right? I mean, you went and you were looking for the MTV glory of that era and wanted to be part of that, just like everybody else. And you, yeah, you we went for it, cliche. Yeah. but you went for it. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a big thing. I mean, you, you packed up and went for it. And although it didn't happen with that particular band, it's, you know, it's a gutsy move. I mean, uh, I'm sure you went out there and knew nobody and had nothing, right? Nothing. I mean, you know, I tell people that all the time now, and it's not in a, like an old man get off my lawn kind of way. It's actually, I, it was awesome having no internet and no, uh, you know, n- no computers and no technology to tell you the future, basically, and tell you what you were getting yourself into and to prepare you and to teach you lessons like everybody, you know, younger generations learn on YouTube now, everything. But um, we were out there just like, we literally only had like a couple of friends that moved out there, and that's all we had to go on. Like, was to hit these people up and go like, Hey man, what, where should we live? What do we do? Where do we go? How, how are you promoting? What are you doing? Who does your, who's doing their, who's doing your band photos? What, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was like, who does your printing for your flyers? It was just all literally just taking it in. And our, our little brains were just exploding with soaking up information at that point, you know? And it was, I, I thought it was amazing because at that point, being blissfully ignorant is what gives you the courage to go do it. I think knowing too much now, it might be, it, you know, and learning too much on the internet about like what you're about to get self, yourself into, you might spook yourself out of doing it. You know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point. I've never thought of it like that, but you're totally right. So, refresh my memory with South Gang. Did, was Desmond Child involved ever? Absolutely, he was. He um he was okay. So when we got signed. We weren't. We we were really d- dead set. Me especially on trying to do whatever we could to get Desmond Child involved because he was my favorite songwriter at that point, and like kind of like my became my songwriting mentor as far as like how to do how to do. He that. was the guy and, uh, then. Yeah, yeah. He was the guy, and he and he still is the guy. He's the man. I love him. We actually. Yeah, had- he was just on the show recently. I just had him on. So we talked cool. about his career. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it is incredible. And I mean, the, long story short. We we got him involved. He wanted to do the record. He wanted to executive produce it and co-write it. And we were completely fine with that. We were like, because we wanted that kind of experience to go in and write these songs with him, even though when you're a kid, you think you already know everything. But um, I kind of knew we were still spring chickens when it came to songwriting. We were too young and too inexperienced. And so we would go to his house every day in Santa Monica. Funny enough, about three blocks from my studio right now, we would go oh, to wow. his house and um, we would um, we would set up there in the back room and, and just go through all these song ideas. And he was just a machine, man. He would just like he was just and he would just yell at you and scream at you and tell you that sucks. This sucks. You know, he, he was definitely crass and and crude and honest. And I loved that because we've never in our lives even been in the same room with another writer, let alone the biggest one in the world at the time. And so it was a great, it was a great boot camp, And, uh, you know, years and years later after falling out, of course, you know, after that record and, and, um, 
never speaking again, really, for years. Uh, I ran into him with my family. I ran into him at an airport, um, you know, at the like American Airlines lounge and uh, going to Nashville. And I see this guy that I was like, God, that guy looks familiar. It wasn't Desmond. It was, it was um, but I was like, why does that look like this guy, Curtis, that, that, that always answered the door when we went to Desmond's house? And how do I have that in my memory? That was like, that was like 10 years ago at the, at, no, it was like 20 years ago. Uh, and so it, whenever I saw him, he had these, he had these two little, uh, little boys with him. And then next thing you know, I look over in the distance and there's Desmond child. And I put two and two together that him and Curtis were now together Right. And that was their, that was their boys. And I walked over to Desmond and I was like, Desmond, I was like, you're not going to remember me, but it's, it's Butch Walker. We did a record all the time. He, he like interrupted me and got up and just hugged me and said, I've been following your career. I'm so proud of you, blah, 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 blah. And it was just, it was like, it was so heartwarming for me to have that like rekindling. And we, we went to dinner at their house that night with my family and uh, just got caught up and went through his story, which I'm sure you heard plenty about, but like mm-hmm. it was, it was a wild time. And, uh, you know, it was just, it's cool that we've kept in touch and, and, uh, and rekindled that friendship because he was, he was, he was my boss, man. That dude taught me everything about songwriting. See, this is exactly why I brought that up because I was curious about that. When I look at your career, you're, you're an artist yourself, you're a producer, and you're a songwriter that's worked with everybody from Taylor Swift to Seven Dust. So it's like the gamut, you know, Green Day, Weezer, you know, it's everywhere. And I I would imagine as an artist, I mean, that's really what you strive for and what you're going for. And if you look at Desmond's career, he's done the same thing. I mean, from from Ricky Martin to South Gang to Aerosmith to whatever. And then now he's performing again himself. He produces, you know, writes, whatever. So really it's it's all consuming and i was just wondering if if that was an influence on you given how your career has progressed yeah absolutely i mean it set the rules right away that there were no rules and there were no boundaries about like who you could work with what you could like what kind of box you had to stay in you know and between him and rick rubin i think those are the two guys that like that proved to me that there there's no walls man i mean it, you can there's good music in every genre and if you want to be involved in it and produce it and write it and and try to make something out of that then i think that's great i mean i grew up on the radio and that was that was like pop and rock and you know metal all of it was the the bands that we were influenced with when we, when we moved to la they were all just playing basically hard rock versions of pop music and so it just it, it, i guess it just made sense to me to be like oh i feel like i have no problem relating and working on like this pop artist as well as this metal artist or as well as this punk artist cuz there's a you'll find there's a common appreciation in all of those artists at, that they all love pop music you know in all shapes and forms it might have a different haircut and a different pair of pants on but it's you know it's still pop music at the end of the day Hey Butch, can you still hear me? I can. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you're so you're good if 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 you I take another twenty or so. Is that okay? Yeah, man. I'm having fun. Okay, cool. What cool. are you working on now? I'm finishing up a record for a solo artist out of uh, San Francisco named Matt Nathanson. I just did a new Wallflowers record. We just finished mixing, um, and and I produced it. And then uh, I'm getting ready to go in and do some more Green Day. 
I know, I know Matt. I had Matt on the, when I was doing that metal show we had of him on. Matt, Matt's yeah. a huge hard Big rock metal, metal guy. Yeah. And, Dude, uh, he and I both sit around and talk about it before we record a lovely acoustic ballad. <laughs> he did, well, he did that, that Def Leppard tribute uh, album. Yeah. He had yeah. me send that to Joe. Yeah. Uh, and there's that. And then, um, you know, the, the craziest thing about the Wallflowers, I got to tell you, I was in an airport. And uh, speaking of running into running by people in the airport, I don't know Jacob Dylan at all, but I, I, I guess he knows me. I don't oh, know. Yeah. He's, he knows, he knows as much about like hard rock as, as any of us. He's pretty well, well versed. Please tell him I send my regards. And because somebody told me that he told someone that he, uh, came up to or ran or walked by me in an airport. And I sort of like, blew him off which i never do to anybody all i can think of is the you know the you know and as anyone the hustle and bustle of the airport i don't know the guy so it wouldn't have been like he stopped me i was just been like but it's funny that after i heard that story somebody said yeah One i tried to guys. talk to him and he 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 was running or something and i was just like i do remember like 10 years ago i got past somebody on the curb of the airport and i'm like I kind of look like Jacob Dylan. <laughs> it's like one of those yeah. things. So well, I would, I love talking because, rock with anyone. So please. Yeah. I, I, it was nothing that I personal at all. Well, no. And, and by the way, I know he listens to volume a lot and he probably listens to, he, he's probably going to be listening to this because he he's up. I'm telling you, he and I both 30. like, he's he's like me and Matt talking. Like we well, seriously well, know all the same music. So yeah. Well, like, like I said, there's a definitely a, I'll, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> Can, you can mention who you're working on records now with. Is that cool, Butch? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Go yeah, ahead and tell everybody. Well, yeah, I, I was just telling you, I was finishing up a record for Matt Nathanson, who you've had on on, on your show before. He's a and, big, uh, even though he doesn't make hard rock, he's a huge hard rock fan. I know Matt. Great totally, guy. Yeah. Totally. I, I appreciate that more than anybody, too, because of the same reasons. But like, uh, I just finished a new Wallflowers record as well that's going to be coming out. And uh, Jacob... Uh, He's a he's also a big fan and listens to your show and also I'm sure he might be listening to this as we speak. Well, I if that I hope that's the case because uh, I was telling you during the commercial break uh, somebody told me I don't know through a secondary channel or something that I encountered or walked past or something Jacob in an airport a while ago and didn't realize I honestly didn't realize it was him and if I would have I would have loved to have talked to him about his band and music in general so Jacob if you're listening you know get my info from Butch I'd love to have you on the show and talk rock with you anytime so I I you know how that is when you're running through airports and you're like Hey, wait a minute. There was, I was in LAX. Uh, this just happened. And I know Kirk Hammett from Metallica well. And there, a guy in the hustle and bustle of the airport, a guy walks by me and then he's, you know, he's got a hat on and sunglasses and he kind of bolts by me really kind of quickly. And then like a minute later, as I'm waiting for my plane, I'm like, I kind of feel like that was Kirk. And I <laughs> go to my phone and I, I know him well enough to text him and I go, Hey bro, are you at LAX by chance? And he's like, "Yeah, why?" I go, "You just blew by me. Hell of a disguise." He's like, "Why don't you say hi next time?" I go, "I didn't realize it was you till after you were like down another terminal." So, anyway, that's Jacob, happened. Uh, that's happened so many times. <laughs> so many times. The airport, yeah. the airport shuffle. Yeah, I've done it before many times. Happens yeah. all the time. So let me ask you about um, the band after. Uh, you had South Gang, which is Marvelous 3, which is interesting in that three quarters of the band morphed into Marvelous 3. 
pretty much. And here's what I find really incredible. I love Power Pop, and I love what you guys did on that Freak of the Week. The minute I heard it, I was like, wow, that is so killer. Cool. And, I, and, I, and in all honesty, I did not really know South Gang and the, those records, but Marvelous 3, was I was just fleeting, like, yeah. I was just like, wow, when I heard Freak of the Week, I was playing it on the radio. I was into it. But you guys pulled off something that tons of bands at that time were trying to do and really couldn't do. And that is, you know, as well as anyone, if you came from that 80s scene, so to speak, and you were branded as that, which South Gang was a part of, even though you didn't have, you know, big success. That that was like a scarlet letter. Like you couldn't get arrested in the business. If you were a producer, if you were a writer, a photographer, an artist, I lived it. When you when that scene changed, it was like boom, everything was wiped out. And there were a lot of artists who tried to do a reinvention, come out under a different name, a different look, a different sound, and have a career. Very few did it. You guys did it with three quarters of the pant and got a major label deal at Electra. How did you yeah. do that? It was really funny, actually, because we, you know, by that point, the internet was just starting to become, I mean, it, it was already in play, but it was still in the, the it, it was still in the infant, you know, stages of its, uh, of its relevancy, you know, and in 98, I guess, um, people just didn't put two and two together or didn't care to, first of all, it shouldn't fucking matter, right? But I like, agree, at the same completely. Point, at the same point, labels you know, have a bug up their ass about a shiny new penny and make, and you know, they're youth obsessed and yes. everything else that comes Completely. with it. So, uh, we were taking meetings left and right because freak of the week got started, started getting played on the radio from Leslie Fram, the program director of 99 X in Atlanta, which is the alternative rock station started playing the shit out of it. And, uh, all of a sudden all the labels that were avoiding us started like flying us out and offering us everything to sign with them. And it was really funny because, um, you know, we went and met with these labels, like we met with Ivine at Interscope. We met with, uh, you know, Universal and all these other labels before we decided on going with Electra uh, at the time. And it was funny because we had just sat in meetings with these people less than, you know, less than 10 years earlier uh, for, for getting signed with South Gang. And of course, none of them recognized us. No one, we, we were still only like 27 years old or whatever ish at the time. But like that, it was enough to be like, okay, you know, short hair now, uh, you know, different, different image completely. But at the same time, same three guys out of the, you know, same three bandmates, you know, out of minus the singer from South King, it was the three of us. And uh, we would sit in these meetings and it was so funny because they would, you know, Ivine would be sitting there just going, okay, well, let me tell you what it's like when you get signed and what's going to happen <laughs> for your band. And we would just be kicking each other under the table going, holy shit, I can't believe nobody knows we've been through this and then some. Uh, and it wasn't like we didn't talk about it. You know, anybody that ever like mentioned it and put two and two together, we'd be like, yeah, that was us, you know? Um, and one, one particular meeting was really funny with Universal when my buddy Greg Hammer, who runs Red Bull Records now, uh, and I'm still really close with and I've worked with some of his artists, uh, he was one of the kids at a college radio station who used to play us all the time on South, when we were in South Gang uh, uh, on the East Coast. And um, he was like a college DJ. And then uh, he uh, was so big into Marvelous 3 
early on. Like he was trying to get Doug Morris to sign us and Doug wouldn't touch us. He wouldn't like, nobody would, he tried so hard. He would fly us out and pimp us out and everything. And finally, uh, when, when we, when we had a song on the radio and then of course, ironically, Doug Morris goes, go get him." you know? So yeah. he goes and he takes us out to dinner for like the, this is like the 10th time Greg Hammer's taking us out to dinner. He'll get a kick out of me telling the story. It's funny. I told it many times, but he's, uh, uh, he's sitting at this, uh, dinner with me and Jace and slug from marvelous three also from South gang. But we've never brought this up to him obviously yet. And, um, he, we start talking about uh, about like the, the the old school metal days, and he goes, "Man, I was a DJ uh, at a college radio station, and there was another band out of Atlanta because we were from Atlanta." And he goes, "There was another band out of Atlanta I loved so much, and I I had them on my show a couple of times. I was obsessed with them, and man, they were great. This, you know, and they started like talking about how how great the guitar player was and all this stuff, and I was like, and and he he said he said it was this band called South Gang, and we were like, yeah, we, I mean, I." we've heard of those guys. And then, and then, and then he, we're sitting there kicking each under, uh, under the table. And I finally looked at him at Greg and I said, yeah, what was that guitar player's name? And then, and he goes, I don't remember. I said, it was something like, there was something like Butch. And then I think the bass player's name was Jace and Jace is sitting at the table and slugs at the table. And then he just looks it up and he goes, you son of a bitch. And he just like, <laughs> He like he lost his mind, but it, but it was all in good fun, you know. Because it was, it, yeah. I mean, unless people lived that scene, and I, you know, I'm 55. I grew up in the business. I started in right out of high school and worked for labels and worked in artist management. Been in radio since the day I got out of high school. And and unless you lived all that stuff, I don't think people can appreciate just how brutal and completely unfair it was to any artist associated with that scene trying to you know do something different and and evolve in their careers i mean skid row became known as a band a tried a band called ozone monday they called themselves and played i mean everybody tried something uh, jason beeler from saigon kick wrote a number one wrote a number one song with love is on the way and then a year later the scene changes can't can't get arrested he became something else he had a couple other bands under different names but very few could get any traction with it even it was almost like they had to suppress and hide and be ashamed of the success but, that they had had before but check this out eddie that this is the funny part is when marvelous three got signed and alt rock was at an all-time high in the late 90s like all of us found each other, the bands that were the little orphans from the, <laughs> from the hair metal scene, right? We found each other because there was plenty of them. And it's funny, I ended up becoming really close friends with most of them and even working on their records later because I remember we got on a festival with the guys from the band Lit because yep. they were riding, they were riding high on their single. And I was like, God, why do you guys look so familiar to me? You know, and, and then it, and it hit me and I was like, Razzle, you guys were in a band called Razzle on the Sunset Strip when we were on the Sunset Strip. We used to pass you guys handing flyers out every fucking day, <laughs> and they were like, "Yes," and that was, and they remembered us too, and we that was a common bond. And then uh, same with Jay Gordon for uh, and Amir Darak from Orgy. They Rough were cut. we played we played tons of festivals with them, and that was some of the guys from Rough Cut. And Jay yep. used to hang out on the Sunset Strip before he was even he wasn't even a singer. He was just a guy with long hair and looked cool and was hanging out in front of Gazaris every night. And we would sit there and talk to him and drink out of our flasks. And um, and then um, uh, a little band called Weezer 
uh, because that was a band called Zoom back in the day. And I used to see them. They used to roller skate up and down the Sunset Strip with, with bath towels on and handing out flyers with sticks of gum uh, stuck to them for all the flyers that they were handing out to all the girls on the Sunset Strip. It was so funny. But that was Rivers Cuomo. And yeah, it's just well, like, I- it was all the same time even my manager that, was in a hair pedal my, my oh manager i right know now, jonathan yeah electric jonathan angels yeah. he was <laughs> electric an electric fucking and before that candy <laughs> i don't know if you know about candy but before that oh, dude was candy. i know are you kidding me that's like we, we I'm, I'm equal parts candy and electric angels that's why jonathan <laughs> and i are together it's like power pop and hard rock and it's like, yeah it's perfect you whatever happened you, to fun yeah, exactly. You mentioned uh you mentioned Rivers and and it's funny because I've been trying to have this conversation with him and maybe one day it'll happen, but I've had multiple people call this show and say he's a listener, he's a fan, he used to watch that metal show and he, he I've read a bunch of interviews and listened to interviews with him and he's totally into metal and I have no idea. He said he used to be a shredder and like Ingve Malmstein tribute and it was like scary, it blew my mind. I'm like, shredder. "Oh, I got to have this yeah. conversation with this guy. He's another one." So, it's it's yeah. pretty Cool. And if you think about it, Weezer's a pretty, I've seen Weezer live, they're a pretty heavy band with that pop melody in it, but man, there's some serious guitar crunch in that band. Oh yeah, man. I mean, it was like, it was like hard rock, uh, pet sounds, you know, which yeah, is exactly. it's like, and, and that's his influences. His influences are like everything from, from like a lot of like, uh, like eighties hard rock to nineties grunge and also seventies, you know, uh Beatles and uh Cheap Trick and and uh Beach Boys and and so yeah it, he's he's a fascinating fascinating human being <laughs> yeah. to say the least I bet hey before I run out of time here with you so just go you've made a, a string of solo records now and and obviously the, the the unfortunate thing about Marvelous 3 is it never really went the distance and you didn't really have the huge uh, breakout success with that band either but then uh, needless to say, you've had tremendous success in 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 the years as a songwriter and a producer, as a solo artist yourself. You've got a brand new album out now. Uh, talk about this record because this is interesting. That you've decided to do what's essentially, I guess, would you would would concept record be the right way to to describe it? I mean, I've listened to it all the way through. I know you've got things that connect stuff, and there's some some narration in there, and there's different stuff going on. Uh, talk a little bit about this record. It's a really cool record. Thanks. It's a, well, it's a, it's like a power pop rock opera, is what it is. So it's like I put out this record that sounds like all of the stuff that I was listening to on the radio in the late 70s and early 80s that mirrored my childhood and my youth uh, around my age at that time and what I was also seeing around me socially. Uh, growing up in a small kind of a rural southern town and so I made a record about it because um, I felt like there was some stuff that just needed to be talked about without you know without getting preachy or whatever because it's not a preachy record it's a very it's kind of a bittersweet love story about hate and uh, so I just made this record with these characters that were based loosely on uh, uh, people I knew and also myself uh, growing up in those experiences that I went through so yeah I guess put calling it a, a power pop or rock opera or whatever you want to call it. That's kind of what it is. Have you, have you ever done a concept or rock opera sort of vibe before? Have you ever made a record like that? No, I mean, I made a record called uh, the rise and fall of a uh, Butch Walker and the let's go out tonight's, which was a, just a campy play on the, on the Ziggy record. And, uh, but, and it was not as much of a, it was a theme, but not really a story. 
you know, this is actually a story with characters and everything, and there's life and love and death and everything in it. So it's a it, it's a whole thing. But um, I you know I start I made the record two years ago and sat on it and didn't do anything with it. So uh, I'm 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 just glad I put it out because I didn't even think I was going to put it out because I thought it'd be a really strange thing for me to tour on because I've got a fan base that I, I, I love. I love my fans because man, they've been with me a long time through thick and thin and it's all ages. And, uh, you know, there, there's 30 years of, of material that I pull from, uh, when I play shows. So it just felt weird to go like, Oh, I'm going to have this, this rock opera that is going to be weird. If I take a couple of songs and just put it into a, the out of context with a bunch of right. other songs and it's kind of needs to be played from beginning to end because it tells the story that way. Otherwise it's got some pretty crazy lyrics that wouldn't be making sense to people. I don't think so. You know, I, the, the divine intervention happened of this um, pandemic sitting everybody at home on their ass. I was like, well, I guess I should just put this out, you know, cause if I was going to have a weird time touring on it anyway, maybe this is just the best thing for me to do is release it. And, and I'm glad I did, you know, I've been, man, I've been getting a, a ton of uh, f- fan feedback and it's been all amazing and, and people really appreciate the story. So it's been, been really cool to hear. Plus I, looking- I got to shred on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some killer guitar solos on it, man. I listened to it. There was some trust. I made a note of a couple of them that I loved. There was uh well, some of the tracks out out in the open, um fuck it, of course. <laughs> it's just fuck it, know. I don't like love, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I lo- I'm looking at your website and people can uh, learn more at butchwalker.com, but I'm looking at the site and I and I see this that there's a film. You did a film. Is this the full album with video to it? Tell me about the yeah, American actually, Love Story film. Yeah, it's it's just a all it is is kind of like a glorified music video, a lyric video. It's like a it's like a video visualizer basically, and every song is in order of the record and go and has characters and kind of just gives you just a just a broad visual. That's not very it's not like a detailed movie with dialogue, but um, it does help piece the story together. And plus, it gives you the lyrics at the bottom like a good old fashioned lyric video, so that um. Uh, so that you can kind of, you know, make sense of it because it does get a little, this concept's a little tricky, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's cool. And people, people really love it. So I'm, I'm, I couldn't be happier about it. You know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. As a songwriter, how did you feel about writing something that was one central theme all the way through versus each song being a standalone thing? Is it easier or more of a challenge to look at something as a full piece or 10 individual songs? It's hard. I can't, I mean, I, I can't imagine how hard it must be for people to actually write a screenplay or, you know, for a, for anything like Broadway m- musical or a movie, uh, anything. Uh, it, it, it started just with a theme of me. Like I was writing these songs that had a common theme and didn't plan on making anything, but just a regular record. And I sent the demos to my manager and he would just, Jonathan would say, sounds like you're making a rock opera or a concept record here. And I was like, Oh, I didn't, I wasn't planning on it, but I am now. And so, um, so I just, I started really concentrating on coming up with like a story and characters and basing it on a lot of my experiences from my youth. And, um, and it, that's when it became what it did, but it was, there was definitely no reason to, to do it at the time, you know? And like I said, I started on this two or three years ago and sat on it after about a couple of years. So, mm. 
Well, everybody can check it out now. It's it's out now, and you can go to butchwalker.com to see the film that we're talking about and learn more about everything that has that Butch has going on. And really, in the time that we've spent here, which is about 40 minutes, I mean, just scratching the surface of your career and all the different people you've worked with. And when I get out to L.A. and things get normal again, like I said, I was coming out every month, we definitely have to connect and, and hang out. And I'd love to have you in studio and just sit in with me. And my God, we could tell stories forever. Man, I'm I'm telling you, that's one of the reasons why that I I was bummed we never got a chance to meet earlier because I was like, I think if we ever got caught up in an airport, we'd probably miss our flights. <laughs> probably you know? true. I, I I think so. Like I said, I'm only this is only the the start of where we could go with all this. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Of all the artists you've written songs with or for, what's your biggest? Because we've talked about. We've talked about Marvelous 3 and South Gang, unfortunately, not going the distance and not getting the big success. Neither of them were commercially big, successful bands. But clearly, since then, you've had a tremendous amount of success working with other people. What's been the biggest one so far for you? Well, one the first thing I ever did was, ironically, one of the biggest songs I ever did. And it was a complete lark because I did, I, you know, they wanted to put me with a uh, with a teen pop uh girl to to write and produce songs for the record when i had just come from doing basically metal and punk demos in my in my you know garage for for people grow all through the 90s and then i had the success with uh with freak of the week which was limited success but enough to get it on the radar and then i started working with other artists like um i did a song that got bigger at alternative for a band uh, called sr71 and then after that i worked with this pop punk band called simple plan and uh and did a song with them and all of them were on this girl's radar uh avril lavigne (laughs) and so they and they they hit me up about working with her and i was like huh well I, i never thought to do that but uh but sure let's try it what the heck you know and i got together and and co-wrote a, a couple of songs uh, and produced them. And next thing you know, they ended up on the record. And the first one was a top 10 called Don't Tell Me. And then the second one went straight to number one. And that was a song called So Much For My Happy Ending. And then all of a sudden, I got a lot of calls <laughs> yeah. from a lot of pop, pop girls. But that and then later in life, um, also the Fallout Boy song, My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark. Uh, it's also called Light Em Up. That, that was a that was a big, that was a number one song that like I had uh, co-written and already had the kind of had the demo for it actually before I even met with the band about making the record. And uh, it was actually in mind for somebody else. <laughs> and uh, they were like, Nope, that's us. We're going to do that. And, uh, and then uh, that ended up go- going to number one and kind of putting that band back on the map, which I couldn't be more proud of. And now we got green day and that, that their song that just hit number one, uh, I was really proud of that too, because it's not every day that happens for a guy, you know, writing and producing. It there's a lot of dry spells in between, <laughs> so it's uh, it's been very spread out and appreciated too. So yeah, yeah. Well, Butch, I got to tell you, man, congrats on all of it. It's um, you know, again, this conversation was long overdue, and for a long time, my audience has been saying, you know. 
hey, man, it'd be great if you got Butch on there every once in a while. And I was like, I'd love to. And then I know we went back and forth a couple times. And then I saw the info about your record. And I'm like, this might be a good time. And I was literally, honestly, holding off on doing it because I so wanted to do the, a full show in person with you in the studio in L.A. And I, I don't know. Hopefully that'll happen soon again. And once I get back out there, we'll still do that. But I at least yes. wanted to kind of touch base and check in with you and uh, have you on and just you know give a little overview on your career, which is truly incredible and i congratulate you for so thanks for the time man thanks man thanks for having me i love your show and always been a fan of listening to you and so it's all stuff i love you know well thanks i know like i said we got more to do we're gonna get to it for sure so uh, good luck with the new record as well and good luck and say hi to all the clients you're working with many of them i know and the ones i don't send them my best they're all welcome to come on anytime and uh again i appreciate it be safe there hopefully i'll be out west soon okay eddie take care brother Well, thanks to Butch. Great to visit with him. And thanks also earlier to Joe Bonamassa. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing each and every week to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It is greatly appreciated. And of course, thanks to SiriusXM. All the interviews you hear on this podcast originated on my daily radio show, Trunk Nation, only getting a taste, a tiny taste here on the podcast. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, please join me for my daily rock talk show with all these interviews and a whole lot more every day live, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Channel 106 Volume, and of course, replaying every night, 10 to midnight Eastern, and full shows on demand anytime you want on the SiriusXM app. Thanks to Katie Irizarry. She produces this podcast for me every week. You guys have yourselves a great week. Listen on SiriusXM to me every day, and be sure to connect on social media as well. And I'll catch you next Thursday for a new episode. Take care. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.